Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, y'all. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. We are really excited to share this episode with y'all where we interview Mando Rayo. And in the interview, I totally botched his name. So feel free to laugh along. (laughs) I was like, oh, God, it's too early. Here we go. Where's my coffee? But Mando is an incredible guest. We thought it'd be fun to speak with him because he is a taco journalist. So he lives in this world of food reporting. And our series right now is about food insecurity. But he really seeks out the stories that are not told, those stories that are a little more invisible to the general public. So we were like, this would be interesting to get his perspective on food insecurity in Texas and how we highlight certain stories and kind of diminish other ones. So it was a fascinating conversation. And we learned a lot. And most importantly, I think for me, the takeaway is I learned to seek out more more experiences and just be more curious, particularly when it comes to food, because I'm one of these people that I like what I like. I'm not as picky as I once was, but I'm like, it's good. In the podcast, we say, get a little uncomfortable, try new things. So I'm going to take my own medicine and do that when it comes to food establishments. He is definitely inspiring. I agree. I feel inspired after listening to him. I think another great takeaway from Mondo is he's this perfect, I'm going to try this word out, nexus. (laughs) I hope I'm using this correctly. But of the way that you can bring attention to things that are important through a lens that's really light and fun and interesting. I love the way he marries storytelling with food, with sometimes social justice issues or things that are a little bit sort of deeper than the surface might provide at the beginning. Like he really kind of can lead people down a path of learning more and thinking more deeply about just the way that they take in the world. And I think that's such a great way of, I'm going to use your metaphor too, Claire, of like kind of giving people medicine, like a way of educating people about issues that affect folks that they might not normally pay attention to and doing it through a way that is very digestible and fun and interesting. It's a good combination that I think he represents. Yes. And he has so much incredible content. So if you listen to the show and you're like, I need more Mondo, he has a podcast called Tacos of Texas. He has a show called United Tacos of America. He has two books, Austin Breakfast Tacos and the Tacos of Texas. And he has a production company called Identity. So he has a lot of great stories that you can dig deeper into. So check out this episode. And we will have some of these things we mentioned in our show notes so you can keep learning more. But check out this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited to continue talking about food insecurity, but kind of from a different angle. We are talking with Mando Roya. Raya? Raya? Rayo. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm off to a start. It's okay. It's early morning. Mando Rayo. Mando Rayo. There you go. 
It's okay. I have to tell everybody that interviews me. They're like, how do I say that? Yes. <laughs> it also sounds so good rolling off your tongue. So maybe that was a gift, right? We got to hear it that way. Yes. Thank you, Mondo. So Mondo, we are excited to talk to you because you have a fascinating podcast about tacos and you use that, as you were telling us before the interview, as your gateway to get people to talk about bigger issues like culture and how is food this intersectional issue and how is social justice kind of connected to that. So it's kind of a Trojan horse which is why we thought it'd be fun to talk to you for this episode. So before we get into all that good stuff, we love to ask our guests about who they are and where they come from. So are you from Texas? I am. I'm originally from El Paso. So I'm uh, from West Texas, based in Austin. I've been here for about 25 years. And by day, I feel like I'm still a community builder. And by night, I'm a taco journalist. So I try to find some of the tastiest tacos across Texas and beyond. Yeah. Since it's also a political show, we love to know about people's political journey. So did you come from a family that talked about politics? No, not really. Not at all, to be honest. I got into kind of politics and a really kind of like a lot. My, my past is grassroots organizing. And that's how I learned a lot about the local community issues and what people wanted in basically working with just local residents. And that's kind of where I was like, okay, what's what's happening here? And then really thinking about seeing yourself. Do you see yourself in, in politics and the people that represent you? And it's in all sorts of media as well. So that's kind of was like, hmm, there's something missing there. Yeah. Was there like a thing that kicked off that organizing, like an experience you had and made you realize, hey, wait a minute, I don't see myself reflected in places of power? Yeah, I think part of it was starting to work with a lot of different organizing organizations that have been a long have been established for a long time, whether it's a traditional nonprofit like a United Way to some grassroots movements. Yeah, I was like, okay, we're supporting and building up communities, but we're not including the community in that process. And then I grew up in the projects. I grew up in low-income parts of El Paso. And so I was definitely very connected to the issues. I have that lived experience. When I started kind of working in Austin and really kind of talking to folks in the community, I kind of just saw that gap for sure. And then that's especially at the leadership level, for sure. And so for me, it was, you just saw it, just saw it. And this was like, I've been in Austin for 25 years. So I really roughly started working nonprofit about 20 years ago. And we're still at it. (laughs) We love that. It's like you're answering this, Mondo, but I'm still curious. Like, because I feel like I'm pretty late to this game. I guess in sort of in my mind, it's kind of like, easy to dodge being politically aware and active. And so I'm still just like, but what was that thing that got you into even the grassroots activism and those community building things? Yeah, I don't know if it was one thing, but definitely it was kind of part of me because I was like, I was a recipient of services as I was growing up as a child. And then I really kind of saw the circumstances, right? And then when I started working professionally, if you kind of want to call it that, the way I couldn't wear this hat, (laughs) then I just kind of really saw it was like, oh, 
what's happening here? And then sometimes you're in a room and you don't see yourselves and you don't feel welcome. And I experienced that a lot. And I kind of was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to change it. I'll tell you one thing. I co-founded The New Philanthropist. It's a nonprofit organization that helps people of color, uh, BIPOC individuals, get into nonprofit leadership roles on boards, on nonprofit boards. But I tell you, there was one thing that did happen. I went through Leadership Austin and I did different leadership types of uh workshops and trainings and programs and so all of a sudden you were sent off and oh good luck with that hope you end up that was back in 2010 i was like there was only a handful of people called it there was like maybe under 10 people out of like 60. and so i was like okay we need to change that and how do we start making those connecting points because you know who's going to get access to that majority white people will have that access because of the legacy of board service and so while it may not be kind of directly political it's about representation so that definitely was a turning point for me that's amazing because i'm thinking too about what those kinds of leadership positions mean for those nonprofits when people who hold those spots understand the lived experience of what it is that they are working on that's got to be hugely impactful and so important yeah yeah for sure that's amazing that's amazing. Ah, I'm like, what's the word I'm looking for? I just think that's incredible that you made those connections and that you were able to see, like, I don't see myself here. I ought to see myself here and I ought to see more people like me here. And so what can I do to build that bridge? The other thing I wanted to point out, people who are not watching don't know that he's wearing a really cool hat that's black and says tacos. So that's what he was talking about before when he mentioned the hat. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> that's all good. So for me, like what brings me together around community issues, whether I'm talking about tacos, I'm a writer, I'm a taco journalist. That's what I call myself. I'm a community person. But the thing that kind of brings us all together is culture. And so we have to be okay with being who we are and even not even code switching, but just like, hey, can I bring my true self to a board service, to a conversation, to an interview without pretending to be or masking myself or masking my culture? to be accepted. In a sense, that's kind of what, at least that's my approach for sure. Yeah, that reminds me, Mondo, I read an article where you gave an interview and you were talking about how you were given some feedback to like change the way you spoke or some of the things you were saying. And I was like, what? Like, is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is we all, whether you're working professionally in nonprofit, in the tech space, community, in schools. There's a certain way that you have to behave. And it's all based on a lot of the historic, like the history of America. And the history of America is really based in white culture. And so if you're not part of that, then you're kind of an other. And so for me, it's important that, yeah, yeah, I've had conversations. I'm a facilitator as well. So I do workshops and around equity and inclusion issues. And so for me, yeah, it's the way I speak is the way I talk. And it's also the way I write and it's the way I converse with you. And yeah, I've had individuals call me out and say, well, you need to work on your grammar. <laughs> and what they're saying is like, hey, you sound different than me and my majority culture. You need to sound more like us so we can feel safe around this conversation that you're trying to uh, engage with us in. <laughs> yeah. What's coming to mind for me is the idea of like, you have to diminish yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's terrible. You don't have to, not anymore. 
But what's interesting is that I think people in power wouldn't consider that diminishing. They would consider that almost like leveling up because that there's that underlying assumption that speaking in a certain way, and I think we kind of all know what we're talking about, is like more proper. It is like indicative of, quote, education and like knowing how to be polite and to how to navigate certain spaces. So interestingly, it's like, I totally agree. I think it would be a diminishment of who somebody is and their authentic self. But I think for some folks, it's the opposite. They would see it as, no, no, no. No, you're rising to the level that you could be like you're living up to your potential. And so it's good to push back on that. I wonder, Timondo, if you could, for folks who aren't familiar with the term code switching, would you mind digging in on that? Yeah, the way I see code switching is this ability where I can actually use my own vernacular, which is, I would say, the maybe underrepresented vernacular versus the majority culture's way of talking. And so code switching for me is where I can have a conversation with my community and a lot of what I do is Spanglish. And so when we get together and it's just comfortable, it's the way we talk. But then if I'm saying, so say if you're in a in a job interview, for example, or you're doing a presentation. And so code switching would be not really utilizing your full vernacular, but just adhering to the majority cultures. And so what they see is this ability to speak in their terms and their language. And so code switching is the idea of actually doing, at least from my experience, those two. And for me, it's like, we need to do away with code switching. But unfortunately, we still have to do that. People of color have to do that to get ahead. And because of like, when you think about who's on those leadership roles, who are the decision-making, who's in those decision-making kind of roles, and if they don't have an understanding of your culture, then you're going back to this idea of like, oh, well, they're not up to this level because they're not part of my majority culture level, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very like gatekeeper-y. There's an assumption about intelligence, I think, that's built into that too. That's just completely false. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So tell us, what is a taco journalist? (laughs) I think part of it is it's me. It's a person that can really use the strengths of their culture to tell a story. And so oftentimes in food writing, you see that outsiders coming in, we can call them guests. (laughs) that go into a community and they interview you and they talk about the food and sure, maybe they can get some background information on you, but it doesn't go beyond that. And so I feel a taco journalist digs deep into those layers around identity, around food traditions. And then there's something that, at least for me, you don't have to explain it to me. Like, I understand it. I live it. I see it. I grew up with it. Obviously, Mexicano and Mexican background is part of my culture. And so for me, it's like one of those things where you're able to dig deeper because of that lived experience. And then really kind of look at, well, what are the surrounding issues around that? Versus like, oh, you're going into a restaurant or a taco truck and really thinking about some of their food. And yes, there's the traditions, but what are the local issues surrounding that? What are the biases even around food culture, especially with Mexican food. And so really digging deep around, well, what does it mean when you can afford a $2 taco along one street, say in here in East Austin, and then at the end of that road, you have a $20 taco plate and who can afford to actually eat at those establishments? It's about identity and food and how food is a connecting point to different people. But it's really kind of thinking about like a lot of those issues, a lot of like issues around migration patterns, immigration, around just 
thinking about even like local, like we did a story on the Austin Taco Mile in North Austin in the Rumberg area and thinking about some of the issues within that community and how people navigate, whether it's high poverty areas, high crime, hunger, those kind of issues. I do feel like taco journalists, taco journalism goes deep into some of those layers. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, why tacos is kind of your entry point. And then if you could explain to us what food tells us about who we are in our communities. Yeah, for sure. I grew up with a tortilla in my hand. <laughs> Part of my culture. It's about, like, what are the first fondest memories you have? You identify as Mexican or Latino. It's like, what are those things that... You know, what are the smells of the kitchen or the outdoors or the tortillas and the comal with mantequilla? Those are the kind of things. And then, you know, when we get together as community or even family celebrations, there's a lot of food. So food is part of the culture. It's an extension of the culture. So you can't separate the two. And so for me, really focusing on tacos was, I mean, it just kind of naturally happened. I always had taco radar. So I knew like where the good places were. And I was like telling people all the time, like when we were doing a lot of like grassroots organizing and business people wanted to help and support, let's go meet at a taco shop. I'm not going to go meet you at Shay Z in West Austin. Like, come on, nonprofits, y'all need to get with it here. <laughs> so this idea of like, hey, you want to understand communities, you have to go in a community. You can't do support a community in West Austin that you're serving East Austin, you know what I mean? Or Northeast Austin or South Austin, it doesn't matter. You gotta embed yourself in a community to really understand it. So I do feel like food is a great connecting point because we all have to, I think it goes deeper when we share a meal together. As they say, you break bread, right? But for us, we tear a tortilla and then we make ourselves some tacos. It's, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. You're making me think of this memory as a kid. All my mom for breakfast would always give me a tortilla with avocado and salt. And like, that's all I wanted to eat. And it's like, oh, original avocado toast. Who knew, right? (laughs) 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 It's the best. And it's still like my favorite thing. Yeah. Claire, where's your mom from? My mom, well, she grew up in Del Rio, Texas, and her family is from Muskies, which is like right across the border, the state of Coahuila, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my mom's family. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. South Texas. Rio Grande. Best tortillas are my mom's, which I cannot replicate because she doesn't have our like legit recipe. She's like, you just add a little bit more flour and then you and then you like. Oh, yeah. 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 They didn't write it down. It was just like, oh, you just kind of by taste. <laughs> yeah. And every time I try to make tortillas, they taste like crackers because it's just so hard <laughs> to get it right. <laughs> that's like my mission in life also mexican rice every time i call she's like, yeah a little more water you add a little more of this i'm like mom i can't do it <laughs> well it's all about you know cooking is a process it's about seeing what works and what doesn't and until you kind of hone in and perfect it <laughs> yeah and here i am over here like i have a really good recipe for spanish rice that maybe you guys would want to try <laughs> i feel like <laughs> trying to like hop in here and uh, (laughs) see where I fit. But I mean, I don't feel excluded because I am an appreciator of all things Mexican food. So I definitely enjoy the eating part. I just don't know how authentic my cooking would ever be. Yeah. I mean, I think even being in Texas, a lot of our foods is rooted in 
practices that we learned and borrowed from each other, from indigenous cooking practices to former African slaves, black slaves. I mean, when you talk about the roots of barbecue in Texas, I know all the white pit masters get all the flame, the fame and glory, but nah, you got to dig deep into where that practice comes from. And it's when you think about like certain dishes and the Chinese that worked on the railroads in Texas and definitely in West Texas, the influence of, of that in a dish that we call discada, which is basically made from a Mexican kind of wok here. They call it a cowboy wok, whatever. <laughs> But yeah, there's a lot of roots, I would say, in Texas that we don't really think about. Where does that practice come from? Where do we learn these practices from? But also, do we honor and respect those food traditions where they came from? And that's super important for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think this kind of segues a little bit into your show, United Tacos of America. There is an interview that you gave where you said, quote, we want to highlight the social issues that are connected to the food, immigration, vendor rights, gentrification, and the respect of the culture, end quote. So can you talk more about that, like the connection between those things that you've noticed throughout your show? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's part of like really thinking about digging deep as a taco journalist, whether it's, yeah, the United Tacos of America show, the podcast, the Tacos of Texas podcast, it's all interconnected. The thing is, is like people that think like, well, why are you talking about immigrants when you're talking about like this delicious food? <laughs> and I'm like, where do you think this food comes from? So for us, it's around like just peeling away at those layers of like understanding those food traditions, where they come from and what are the kind of issues that are associated with it? Because they are like vendor rights is super important. Vendor rights are so important because of immigrants that are cooking the food. And then that's the food that you're able to get and you can take a nice, nice photo for Instagram and what, ha what have you, but you got to like takes a few steps back into what that story is. And then like really thinking about like how immigrants are ostracized in this country, definitely in Texas, or even like somebody that's trying to sell tamales over the holidays. They're like people, you got the Karens of the world calling the health department. And I'm like, seriously, we've been doing this for our families have been doing this for ages. You don't have to have this establishment to support your family. So it's all these layers of community issues, whether they're cultural issues or actual policy issues, where you kind of think about a lot of uh, biases, I would say. There's a lot of biases. There's a lot of uh, stereotypes, negative stereotypes out there. And a lot of them are, are rooted in racism. So for us, it's about dispelling some of that and then having a conversation of what does that really mean when you're saying, hey, let me call the police on this individual or let me call the health department on this individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important. You mentioned something that I feel like maybe there's a level of it I just don't know or understand vendor rights. Can you talk about what that's about? Yeah, for sure. I think part of the process, so say, I'll give you a couple of examples, definitely in Texas and possibly one of the biggest ones is out in California as well. So in Texas, you have folks like I would say, like, say in Austin, back in the 90s, they were trying to shut down the taco trucks because of there's a lot of uh, stereotypes, negative stereotypes that aren't based on actual facts, that they're unsanitary and that there's crime around that area, those kind of things. So people are trying to you're really kind of figuring out, oh, let, let's shut them down because they don't look like us or they're bringing the neighborhood down. So part of the vendor rights there is there's been a lot of uh, work done in Austin 
for worker rights. And so part of that, the vendors and the workers, whether the construction workers or the person serving you the taco, it's about getting them, making sure that they're not harassed for trying to set up their own business, making sure that some of those rights, especially like when you think about who's building the city, the city, the one of the fastest growing cities in the US, right, Austin. But then we don't have, I would say enough rights for them to actually like water breaks especially in the summer. So I do feel that there's been um, the Workers' Defense Fund has done a lot of work here locally around those issues. So when you think about what are their rights as an establishment, as a business, that I would say their counterparts, maybe more white affluent restaurants and chefs, don't have to deal with. Nobody's calling the health department on them because they're in a certain part of town. And then in California, the idea around street vendors was big and it's still big. Basically, decriminalized street vending. So basically, like if you set up shop on the street in, like say in LA, you could be fined or arrested for that. So they decriminalized that, which is amazing. So that's part of this idea of like making sure that folks, whether they're struggling restaurateurs, trying to set up a taco shop, a trailer, a stand, that they have the same rights because they're contributing to the growth of cities and here in Texas and in America. So just ensure that they have those, those rights and those rights should be protected. I'm having this connection. I don't know if this is accurate, but I feel like the folks who are being very critical of street vendors and taco trucks and wanting to regulate and, you know, make sure they're safe are probably the same folks who are like, and the big corporations, leave them alone. You know, so that disparity, that unfairness that I imagine is there. Yeah, I think part of that it's rooted in those biases that people have, believing in those stereotypes. I mean, this whole idea around like, if you Google East Austin right now, today in 2023, one of the top questions that you see is East Austin safe? Mm -hmm. And so 20 plus years ago, that's the same story that's been going on. And so when you think about like who's getting pushed out out of East Austin and like, dude, there's a lot of white people with fancy dogs in East Austin. It's like, <laughs> and so this idea where like, say going to the 812 flea market, 23 South over by heading towards the airport, that place is like, man, it's own world. It's beautiful. It's a flea market. The pulga at its best. You can buy barbacoa by the pound, buy some fruits and vegetables, whatever you need for the week, get entertained by a good banda. <laughs> out there you know so but there's also like a lot of people that are like oh well i don't know is that place for, is that place for me am i safe there but that's rooted in those biases you know what i mean but it is safe because they want to serve you they want to cook for you they want to make sure that you support them as a business and so there's a lot of uh unfortunately a lot of just stereotypes out there that that are not true and that maybe prohibit people from connecting with each other, I would say. Mm -hmm. I think we might also want to, for folks who are not in Austin, talk about, you know, kind of the I-35 dividing line. Yeah, for sure. And the history of that, just for folks who don't have a sense of when we say East Austin, I feel like the three of us get that really easily. But for folks who are not from here, may not quite get that. Yeah, 100%. Part of uh, the legacy, I would say, of the 1928 master plan. First of all, maybe there was about, don't quote me on this, 
I know it's being recorded, but it's, I think <laughs> roughly back then in the 1920s, Austin's African-American population was about 35%. Then through the 1928 plan, they created these undesirable communities, if you will, for white people. And so what happens is they, people, Mexicans lived in West Downtown. There was a chili factory there, just like in San Antonio, you know, the, with the chili queens. There was a chili factory in West Downtown, Austin, over even by the courthouse where it is right now, Republic Square Park. So then there's African-Americans that lived in Clarksville, in Weeksville, and in all parts of town. And so what they did is they said, oh, you can no longer live here. You have to live the other side of Austin going towards the east, right? And then what did they do to get people to go over there? Well, they shut their lights off. They shut the services off. If you wanted to make sure that your kids go to school, you have to go over there. So that's the legacy that we're still kind of dealing with. So they basically forcibly moved a lot of the Mexicans and the African-Americans that were here in Austin towards the east part of town. And then when they built I-35, that's what clinched it. And they're like, boom, separation. So we're still kind of dealing with a lot of that. We're still dealing with whether it's really thinking about the infrastructure that West Austin gets versus East Austin. Some of the core issues, it's going further out for sure. Further East Austin, you could see a lot of these issues around poverty and even thinking about health issues and environmental issues. It's all connected to that. And who thrives? It's the people that the system was set up for. I would say the majority of white people in Austin. So we're still trying to, you know, a lot of nonprofits and grassroots organizing groups are working towards bringing equity forward versus thinking about, oh, aren't we all the same? That wasn't that like 50 plus years ago. What's the problem? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, like when you have a leg up, you can say that. And when you don't, it's hard to really look at your generational wealth and what that means for a community. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a little bit of the, the history. But you know what? Uh, the Austin American Statesman has a great video. They did uh, multiple articles, but as well as a couple of videos actually shows you part of that the 1928 master plan and how it impacts Austin today. So I would definitely Google that as well. Cool. We'll see if we can find that and put that in the show notes. Okay. So you're kind of hitting on this, but speaking of poverty, as we've been researching food insecurity, we've learned that one in eight Texans is food insecure, but I think it's one in five Hispanics is food insecure in Texas. So how are Hispanic families getting by? The way I would say most poor people have done it over time. They're resourceful. They support each other, have a strong informal support network, I would say. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get the help that they need. So part of that is, unfortunately, if you're growing up in a poor part of town in Texas and you're Latino, more than likely you're going to work at a younger age. You have to grow up faster because there's a lot of trauma that you grew up with, that you're dealing with, that you have to deal with grown up issues. And so you kind of have that, but at the same time, I would just say is immigrant and Latino perseverance, you know what I mean? And you just kind of, you do it and you want the best for your family to get ahead and you do it, you chip away and you chip away. I know that you speak a lot in your shows up to the mom and pop owners of businesses. What has their experience been like with inflation and the rising cost of food? I mean, how are they making things still work for them and their businesses? Yeah, it's hard, especially during the pandemic. A lot of them ditch, you know, shut down. And there's a lot of connective issues, you know, related to that. The affordability of food, 
the access even to staff and employees. And so I think part of kind of how they're doing it is like really kind of honing in on their own communities. Where are they and how can they provide a service to their own communities? And then really figuring out, okay, well, you know, maybe we do have to increase some of the pricing around say for now, right now, like eggs, it's a big thing. You know, talk about the original urban farmers is a lot of Latinos and blacks that had their own flock, their own chickens. And like, it's not just this, this thing, this trendy thing. And yeah, you know, it's, it's this, this idea of run connecting back to our roots and the land. So I think a lot of like businesses, your own property, that's a big leg up, but most don't. But then just trying to figure out like, okay, well, I, maybe I can continue with my truck or a pop-up or what have you, or like most people do is like the pulga of uh, the internet, which is Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> <laughs> pulga is flea market. For the <laughs> and there's people putting their stuff out there. And so they're trying to do is, is the best that they can with what they have. And I think that's just been kind of the story of Latinos, I would say here in Texas and the US as well, as well as Mexico. This whole idea around immigration and what have you. I mean, we've always been here. This Texas was Mexico. And so we need to remind people about that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it all goes back to like figuring out how can you cut corners and get something that's more affordable, limiting your hours or doing high impact and high volume towards where the community is, whether it's at the flea market or elsewhere. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of issues that they've, they've been small business owners, mom and pop shops have been going, going through in the last few years. I don't know about you, Claire, but I'm thinking again about invisibility. And so how important it is, Mondo, that you are shining a light on folks and their businesses and this world, because I think so many of us, and I'm including myself, just are unaware if we kind of don't see something right outside our front door, it's hard to be aware of it. And so I'm so glad that you're bringing a voice to people. I'm thinking about my dad is an immigrant too. He came here in his 20s, but, and I can remember having conversations with him. He's, he's just kind of a junk man. Like there is an auction that he does not love, or there is no auction he doesn't love. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. He loves to buy like a box for $5. Who knows what's inside? It just <laughs> everything for him is a treasure. And he has all these like funny habits of like he'll hide cash in weird places throughout the house. And it's like treasure hunting, I guess, when he can sort of like discover money. But anyway, he just has all these like funny habits. And I'm just making so many connections about how when you're not, he grew up very poor. And so when you have not been used to the kind of plenty, I think that I know that I have grown up with and at some points in my life, how resourceful you really are. And so I'm just like definitely making that connection to how folks who live in poverty truly do make it work. Just whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever it takes, right? Yeah. It's like we want to applaud that resourcefulness, but also not make it so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They do it because of necessity, not because of, hey, I just want to do it this way. You know what I mean? That's a big difference when you're like, okay, I got to grow my own food because of necessity. I have to have two or three jobs because of necessity, not just because, hey, I'm going to try this new career. <laughs> you know what I mean? So necessity is a big kind of idea that like you're here to provide and you want, whether it's yourself, your family, your children, 
a neighbor to thrive, then you do it out of necessity. And I mean, at, at the core, that's kind of really what it comes down to. So you were kind of touching on this earlier, sort of this, I think about this idea on how we people are creatures of comfort. We don't stray too far away from what we're familiar with. So how do you encourage people to try a new place, go to the 812 flea market, like go to these places and explore? How do you get them excited for that? I mean, a lot of it is definitely the storytelling itself. Once you share somebody's story, I think we can see connecting points. And so part of that is like, hey, it's okay. Sometimes it's okay to go to a new place and try something new and support them. And like, sure, language could be a barrier for non-Spanish speakers, but I'm pretty sure most people that go eat at Mexican restaurants know restaurant Spanish. <laughs> you don't have to. You could just say, point to the menu. That's what I like. I think part of that is making it accessible is a good thing. And so whether it's through the stories on my podcast and trying to think about different ways and talking to people in different and making it okay for you to be try something new. I try to kind of show the example, if you will, of like, okay, well, in one of my episodes, it was called Las Cafecitas, which is lady bosses. <laughs> and we connected to a couple of groups that vendors basically that would set up in a corner in El Paso, downtown El Paso, and sell burritos from basically 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. And then by then, they would sell out. And so this idea of like, hey, you can do that because they're feeding their communities. And so part of the understanding of that is taking a chance and really kind of going outside of your bubble, outside of your circle is kind of what I definitely encourage people to do. And not just going to the hipster places, trendy taco places, but just like, okay, let me go try this one spot out. Let me like just expose myself to just different cultures. You know, I think that's super important and you'll learn a lot. Keep that curiosity mindset forward and you'll probably be eating some good tacos. <laughs> I love that. We always encourage curiosity and getting a little uncomfortable in our show. Nicole and I are not are familiar with it. <laughs> But it's great. It's like, wow, I'm growing and stretching myself. And now I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go check out more places, more food establishments, because I am terrible when it comes to trying new places. But I'm going to do it. This is on my list. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. If I can help you with one taco at a time. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I'm going to get the book and listen to the podcast and get my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> so is that how to do it? Exactly what Claire just named? Like, listen to your podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do all of it. I have to do just one thing. Go to a new lunch spot. Go with a friend. Yeah, sure. Listen to my podcast. Uh, follow us on Instagram, United Tacos of America. You can do that. A lot of recommendations there. But just go out there and support places that maybe are outside of the regular places you go to. And so small trailers, mom and pop shops. There's always a new pop-up coming up in Austin, new restaurant that has all the bells and whistles, and they're gonna get lots of attention. And so for me, it's all about like the ones that don't get attention. And so those are the ones without the PR budget and the marketing budgets. They're the ones that are probably gonna be hardest hit when trouble, whether it's a pandemic or the economy or what have you, the ones with the big budgets with PR and marketing, I think they're gonna be okay. Right. That's great. So as we're wrapping up, 
we are going to transition into our attention mentions, where we mention something that has our attention. So it can be anything. It could be your podcast, or it can be a TV show that you're watching, or maybe a cool article that you read. So we're going to go around and share that. Does anything come to mind for you, Mondo? It's so funny, because I'm always thinking about stories. Sometimes I like have a hunch on certain stories and then I have to figure out is that true or not. So one of the things is interesting. A friend of mine is working on renovating black churches, historic churches throughout Texas. And he kind of gave me an insight into former black slaves and where they ended up in Texas. And San Antonio was a big part of that migration, I would say, from the deep south, right? (laughs) But then also there's stories around former black slaves that went to Mexico because Mexico made slavery illegal. And that's obviously part of the big reason of why Texas wanted their own independence. (laughs) People don't know that, but they they should. Anyway, so there's a story there. I know that because of like, oh, well, this was Mexico, former back slaves. There's this union of food or sharing or borrowing. So for me, there's something there. I'm hoping we can do something with season three of our podcast, but I'm always interested in kind of those different layers. Yes. Give me some history. Oh my God. I can't believe how little I know. This is another theme of our podcast. Me and Nicole are like, how do we not know these things? It's (laughs) shameful, but it's not our, I don't know, like guess who's in charge of education, Texas education agency and the state board of education and their elected people. So we try to be nice to ourselves too. (laughs) (laughs) while trying to throw as much support to them as we can. Yeah. I had to drive back and forth to Dallas in one day on Sunday. And so I took that opportunity to download an audiobook and decided to go kind of new agey, spiritual kind of stuff. And so it is What You Want Wants You by Suzanne Eater. And it's just about the idea that exactly what the title is actually, right? What you want wants you, but the idea that your desires lead you to exactly where you're supposed to go and all of that. So it's really interesting. Like so many things, it's also a little confronting. So I've had to do a lot of deep thinking, but that we're talking about discomfort. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Thanks, Nicole. Okay. I'm like struggling. I'm like, think, think, think. Okay. I listen to a lot of podcasts. All the time. Love podcasts. And a show that's coming to mind for me is Maintenance Phase. The two hosts talk a lot about diet culture and how damaging it is for many of us. And there was a recent episode that they had where they were talking about the recent recommendations that came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics, basically saying that kids who are obese should be put on diet pills or have gastric bypass surgery. I mean, very severe recommendations. Actually, Nicole, when this recommendation came out, you sent me the article and we were both like, what? So anyway, they dig into the harm of these recommendations and they're just so smart and really interesting. So it's a cool show. But this episode in particular really made me think more deeply about the messages we send about food and bodies and yeah, all of that. So check it out. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you, Mondo, for your time. This is fascinating. And we appreciate the encouragement to try new things and all the knowledge that you share with us. I'm super inspired. Like I can already picture myself now driving around, like taking better note of convenience store parking lots that have food trucks in them and like, okay. In fact, oh, super fast. Sorry, y'all. But my little one my 11-year-old was pointing out yesterday there's a food truck. It's actually in a um, car wash parking lot. And their slogan was, we don't make fast food. We make fresh food fast. 
And Cassidy was like, ooh, I like that. I was like, yeah, me too. Like, let's go. (laughs) We need to circle back and actually go. Yes, that sounds good. Yeah. We're going to do it. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And definitely we'll share it once it comes out. Perfect. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.